So Barbara, where are we catching you right now? So I am back in London now. I just caught the train from Brussels to London, which is more impressive if, you know, it goes under the channel. And I was just thinking, gosh, when it launched, which was, I'm giving away my age now, but it was 1994. And I remember at the time, it was such a symbol of European unity, of the European countries being linked. That's Barbara Sarah. She's a correspondent and presenter for Al Jazeera. She's based in London, and she was in Brussels covering the European Union elections. It's perhaps a little bit symbolic of these elections, how there's a lot of good in Europe, but we almost don't see that anymore. So we wanted to find out what kind of Europe we do see. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The European elections are huge, the second biggest in the world. And they're kind of unusual. Voters are from separate countries, separate cultures. They speak different languages. Their governments are different. And when I was talking to Barbara, I realized how strange this is because together as one big united continent, these voters decide on a parliament based in three cities, in Strasbourg, in Luxembourg, in Brussels, that belongs to all of them. It's just one of these things that the European Union does. Between May 23rd and 26th, voters across the EU will elect members of the European Parliament. This election has become more interesting than previous ones. At this Paris market, some say they're worried about immigration, climate change and the cost of living. And in a sense, if you look at it as a success story, it does show that even nations that are very different and that certainly have a history of war between them, were able to unite and were able to create one of the most prosperous areas of the world. And it's a union that's created incredible prosperity in the past few decades. And what Barbara's saying, this idea makes sense. Compared to some of the big economies like the U.S. and China, each European country is pretty small. It's easier to compete economically if they're banded together. But to do that, they have to get along. So that brings us to this election. Every five years, the EU has this parliamentary election. Each country votes. Germany gets 96 members. It's the biggest country. Others get less. Malta is one of a handful that gets six representatives. It's pretty small. So the EU really came to be in the 90s. But how did we get here? Why unite Europe at all? I would describe it as the best way Europe has come up with for not killing each other every couple of decades. And yeah, I mean, you know, if you look from, I don't know, 17th century, the Thirty Years' War, then 18th and 19th century, the Napoleonic Wars, and then, of course, you know, uh, the First World War, the Second World War, literally millions and millions of people dying. So World War II, which was the worst that Europe had seen, was a real turning point few years after the war, kind of started as the European coal and steel community. Uh, And you think, you know, why coal and steel? Because actually, if you had a community, you kind of knew what everyone else's coal and steel stocks were. Well, then you would know if someone was getting ready for a war. Basically, since World War II, we have obviously seen the wars in the Balkans, more recently in Ukraine. But by and large, especially the big countries 
haven't gone to war with uh, with one another. The reality is that now we're seeing generations, you know, even if you're 50, 60 years old, you have never known war on European soil unless, you know, you're from the Balkans or, or Ukraine. So a unified Europe means less war. And now, without as many wars, it seems like Europeans are feeling safer again. At least that's what it looked like with their election. They're starting to take more risks. They're not going with the safe centrist party choices anymore. In this parliament, there were usually two big voting blocks, center-right and a center-left. Now, these two groups used to control the parliament because they had the overall majority. And they've lost that. So what we've seen is the centrist parties suffer. And what's interesting is that we've seen that at European Parliament level. And then we also, we've also seen that on a national level in a lot of countries around Europe. So that's very much a trend. It sounds like European politics are starting to look more like a donut or a bagel. The center is hollowing out and the political landscape is moving to the extremities. We have seen an increase in the far-right vote, perhaps not the surge we were expecting or that some polls uh, were suggesting. The parliament sits at the beginning of July, so there's a lot of horse trading that will go on over the next few weeks. So they'll be figuring out their coalitions. And let me explain how this works for a second. A party alone isn't enough to tip the scales with this kind of system. These parties have to form these packs with other parties to make things happen the far right included. It will be interesting if they manage to form some kind of group within the European Parliament that would be a far right, nationalist, populist, whatever we want to call them, voice within the Parliament. Because it comes at a time of huge change. You know, for example, this is the first European election since Trump was elected in the States because uh, these elections happen every five years. And the really strange thing about the European Parliament is that some of the parliamentarians and the parties trying to get in are actually anti-EU. So you get this crazy situation where there's people campaigning to get into a parliament that they kind of want to either change or destroy from within. Like people who don't believe in the European Union. They don't think it's the best option. Barbara's in Britain, where this anti-EU sentiment got real three years ago with the Brexit vote. Britain voted to extract itself from the European Union. A historic decision by British voters for their country to exit the European Union. Brexit compromise talks between the UK government and the opposition Labour Party have collapsed. Smiles all around as Brexit talks produce a last-minute deal, a breakthrough of diplomacy or a hurried deal to prevent the collapse of talks. And where does it leave? Stage two of negotiations. So, Barbara, that's the kind of thing you mean, right? But they still ended up voting in the EU election. Technically, I mean, I know we've all been talking about nothing but Brexit for years, but technically the UK is still a full member of the European Union. And while they are, they still take part in decisions. And so they need representation because actually the parliament is the only time that European citizens get to vote for a European institution. Um, So that's why, but I did feel bad all the people that were canvassing, you know, going door to door saying, you know, I'm from this party vote because people were just opening the door and saying, I'm sorry, I thought this was the institution I voted to leave uh, three years ago. But anyway, I'm sure they're all fine now. <laughs> um, uh, so no, a big division here, like all over Europe as well. Here, it almost became 
a second referendum in the sense that there was only one issue and that issue was Brexit. And so uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party did incredibly well. The first seat allocated is the Brexit party and the candidate awarded the seat is Nigel Paul Farage. So the one thing I'd say about Farage is that I think what we've seen in Europe, much like we've seen with Donald Trump as well, love him or loathe him, it's personality politics. You know, Farage has been going on about leaving the European Union literally for decades. I mean, his party before the Brexit party, uh, UKIP, the UK Independence Party, um, you know, started, I think, in the 90s uh, in one shape or another. People used to laugh at him decades ago about wanting to leave the European Union. And obviously it wasn't just him uh, that got us to the, to, to the Brexit result. Um, but certainly he was a part of it because he is seen at a time when Europe, as in the European Union, seems quite distant. He is seen as one of us. And so he kind of built this whole personality about that one issue. But it doesn't seem all that easy to leave, even if you want to. British Prime Minister Theresa May stood in front of 10 Downing Street and resigned from her job in literal tears after three years trying to leave the EU. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. It played into the the British um, election because it was just surreal. She... I mean, it was obvious she was going to resign and she literally waited until after polling day. It's just been a very strange time here in the United Kingdom because, you know, since the Brexit vote, it does seem like the whole political system has been changed uh, uh, considerably. It's this same thing. The centre is emptying out and people are reaching for political extremes. But that's the UK. What about Europe? You're European, right? Yeah, so I've got two passports, Italian and British, but I grew up in Denmark, so I always kind of like fudge in and say, oh, you know, I'm kind of Danish. But, you know, it's such a weird thing to say I'm European because it's a really strange thing uh, to be uh, European. And, you know, we all have these slight stereotypes about these other countries, uh, all our neighbors, which sometimes, you know, do have elements of truth. I say this as an Italian. I am often late for things. So, you know. Okay, let's talk about Italy. This election there was pretty huge. And Italy's one of the largest countries in Europe. It's got 76 members in the EU parliament. A third of the Italian vote, 28 seats, went to the hard-right populist party led by Italy's deputy prime minister, Matteo Salvini. So take us back a little bit. Where did this love for Salvini come from? Two things happened in Italy, like in a lot of other European countries. One was the Eurozone crisis. So that started about, you know... Just after the financial crisis, obviously linked to that. So let me just explain for a second. This Eurozone crisis was this mildly terrifying test of the Euro and the European economy. It was after the 2008 financial crisis in the U.S. and all these countries, Greece, Cyprus, Portugal, Spain, Ireland, their banks defaulted and they had to go to the European Central Bank for bailouts. There were these austerity measures, essentially this pretty strict financial diet these countries had to agree to. It made it harder to get jobs and it wasn't great for the individual economy. The number of people out of work in Greece continues to rise. More than one and a half thousand riot police have been deployed on the streets of Madrid to keep the demonstration under control. So it raised this real question of whether the European Union, the whole idea of this united European economy, was even possible. 
people started to wonder, maybe this wouldn't work. And Barbara, you're saying Italy really felt this Eurozone crisis pinch. Unemployment shot up, youth unemployment shot up. um, And so there was a lot of anger there, based on a system as well that's very nepotistic, so not as much meritocracy. You know, it's, it, it's, this is all by Western standards, but still Italy is actually, you know, between the seventh and eighth biggest economy in the world. So obviously it is a powerful country um, with a lot of money, but it was highly damaged by the Eurozone crisis. It created a lot of anger. It's interesting because Greece, just four years ago, voted in a liberal populist, Alexis Tsipras, to confront Europe and say no to these austerity policies. And Tsipras really suffered in last week's election. He's stepping down and he's calling for new elections now in Greece. But you said the economic hangover isn't the only factor here. Something else is also driving Salvini's popularity in Italy. The other thing that um, a lot of these populist parties or certainly La Lega um, really pushed was anti-immigrant sentiment. It's not just sentiment. Salvini's block ships of migrants from landing in Italy. And these ships are carrying people who are pretty desperate. Now, obviously, what has happened is that after the Arab Spring and a lot of the, you know, the Syria uh, war, for example, there were a lot of asylum seekers that had left and came to Europe mainly through Turkey, Greece, and then up through the Balkans. Then what Italy gets, because of course it's a coastal country, Italy is the boot, the heel, the tip, um, is very close to the North African coast. It meant that often you would just have, I'm sure you've heard about, um, but, you know, being put in these rickety boats, you know, sent off into the Mediterranean. I mean, sorry, this is horrific, but you know, often sometimes the bodies just wash up ashore. And I remember reading this interview with one of the doctors who was in charge of doing the autopsies on these bodies and on uh, what he thought. Um, was a, you know, young teenage boy, because of course, how do you know how old they are? And he felt in his jacket something crinkling. And so he undid the lining of the jacket. And inside the lining of this boy's jacket, he found inside a plastic, a little plastic folder, his report card from school. As if to say, look, you know, I'm a hard worker. I'm really good. I can contribute. And I just want an opportunity. And so a lot of those stories were coming out and there was a lot of empathy. I mean, just as a human... It really does sound really hard to turn people away. You know, I don't want to make it sound like people in Italy were always heartless. I think opinions hardened towards the EU when they was left without hope. Hope of, of a lot of migrants being redistributed. But the Italian population, I think a lot of them are just exasperated uh, by the inability of the European Union to deal with the issue as a union, they reached a level where, well, you know, we keep on helping people and then the European Union isn't helping us. So then when someone like Salvini comes and says, well, actually, the problem is that, you know, they know that we will go and rescue them. So actually, we're just perpetuating the cycle of migrants risking their lives to cross the Mediterranean. And, you know, Salvini is also a great communicator. He's on Facebook the whole time, does his Facebook lives. So no one, you know, no journalist can actually call him out on the stuff he says. 
And that had a lot of impact in Italy. And I think that's why you see a lot of the vote uh, for him. There's this kind of incredible picture on Salvini's Facebook page. I pulled it up now. I'm looking at it. He posted it after he won. And he's smiling and he's holding this sign, number one party in Italy's. It's written on it in Italian. And then on a bookshelf behind him, you can clearly see a Make America Great Again hat pretty evocative of U.S. President Donald Trump. And there's also a picture of Russian President Vladimir Putin. They're literally behind him, at least in the picture. And it's not the first time Salvini's posted a picture of Putin on social media. Then there's this former Trump official. He used to run the conservative website Breitbart, Steve Bannon. He's been touring Europe for a while now, pushing his far-right nationalist ideas. One of the main backers is alt-right ideologue Steve Bannon, who played a leading role in President Trump's electoral victory and was the author of his nationalist American first dogma. His intention here, to spread that vision across Europe and beyond. He met with Brexit king Nigel Farage. He helped found a school in Italy spreading the same message. But now what's interesting is news signs that Europeans are pushing back against at least the appearance of outside influence in their politics. So let's go to France, where a week before the EU elections, Bannon went to Paris. He was doing interviews, fawning over France's far-right leader, Marine Le Pen. And Le Pen saying she only learned of Bannon's visit in the media, insisting he had no role in her campaign. And her party won. They won the EU election. I asked Barbara about that moment. I mean, you could really tell she was savoring the moment when she went out to, uh, you know, thank her supporters when the election results uh, came out. And a lot of those supporters were from France's own populist movement that we've been hearing about for months. The very fashion forward yellow vests, these swaths of protesters wearing these yellow traffic vests are a real issue for French President Emmanuel Macron. And the election showed their populism is lined up with Le Pen's. I think the yellow vest certainly uh, played a role. She had fewer votes than she did five years ago, but it's interesting how the the dynamics of European politics have changed, that that was seen as a real victory for her and a real victory for the alliance. Because, you know, who are the main parties in Europe? Well, Germany is by far the biggest one, about 80, 85 million people. And then it's Italy, France and the UK, about 60 million each. Numbers-wise, it wasn't that impressive, but she she certainly looked happy when she went on that stage. And the biggest country in Europe, Germany, like you say, didn't have huge gains on the far right, but it did lose out in the center. Chancellor Angela Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, won, but lost a lot of support. And the Socialist Party, Merkel's coalition partner, came in third, which is a real blow. They've been political institutions in Germany since World War II. So this is a huge shift But there was a new sign of life for the environmental party, the Greens. The Greens have done really well. People all across Europe want to form a peaceful Europe together. All across Europe, the Greens are strong. So they were the second party in Germany, which is amazing. And they've done very well in a lot of other European countries. Now, they're not 
that big, but they could probably sway some of the bigger coalitions, you know, perhaps the centre-right, to take green matters, you know, so the environment, which of course affects everyone, more seriously. But even in Germany, there is a far-right party, the AFD, it's called the Alternative for Deutschland, Alternative for Germany uh, party. Now, they didn't do as well as predicted, but when you break down um, the actual results, They didn't do as well in West Germany or the Western part of Germany, but they did have a strong turnout in Eastern Germany. Now, obviously, Germany was reunited um, when the Berlin Wall fell, but it's interesting how a lot of the cultural differences that still remain between Eastern and Western Europe, you could almost see in Germany itself. So let's move east to Eastern Europe the countries closest to Russia physically, like Poland, which had a nationalist victory. And of course, we want to talk about Hungary's nationalist hero. Viktor Orban. Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He's famous or infamous for his remarks against immigrants. He literally blocked their entry. He built a razor wire fence. And then he saw a victory. Yeah, he did. And not just victory. I mean, his Fidesz party, I think, got around 50%. I mean, it's always done incredibly well at all sorts of elections, always hovering uh, at over. So he has a, 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 a total uh, majority, which is quite interesting. Um, I think that shows, again, perhaps some of the cultural differences between Western Europe, which remains a bit more liberal, and Eastern Europe. The voters of Europe, what we saw from them was a much bigger turnout, and they could have been reacting to this anxiety around a potential surge from the far right. The parliament is the only time that European citizens vote directly for an institution. And the great irony is that wherever you go in Europe, there will always invariably be someone going, oh, you know, the EU doesn't represent me, and, you know, I don't feel that there's anyone there that understands what my problems are, what my issues are. And then actually, when you get that one chance every five years to vote for the European elections, turnout is shockingly low. I'm talking that, you know, in some countries, it's as low as 13 percent, one, three. And this time, I suppose, because people maybe were worried, you know, this really was an election that still has, I think, the power to change the nature of Europe. So people actually turned out. So, I mean, don't expect anything crazy. We're still looking at a turnout of just over 50 percent but it's the highest that they've seen in decades. And I suppose that does show that maybe people are getting more engaged with Europe and even the Eurosceptic vote. In some ways, Europe is not just a continent, it's an idea, it's part of this definition of the quote-unquote West. But, and you were saying this before, Europeans are looking to their own individual countries for definition, so not the continent. This is all about national politics. You know, even if you're 50 now, in Europe, you don't remember the war. You don't even remember your parents talking about the war. And so I think you're seeing the first generations that don't see Europe as an entity that stopped another war erupting on European soil, um, but maybe take a lot of the benefits of the EU for granted. You know, Europe has had a period of incredible wealth over the past few decades, and, and maybe you know, that kind of growth cannot keep on continuing. But in that debate, if a far-right party comes to you and says, no, 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 we have the answer, and the answer is, you know, you close the ports, all immigrants out, we are Christian, uh, we are one Italy, and we are this and that, then that is an easy 
and certainly clearer um, answer to your questions than perhaps a more realistic but more complicated answer would be. So you do think this idea of the West, these values of freedom, democracy, human rights, they are shifting. I do think that right now with the election of Trump and a lot of these moves within Europe, we are looking perhaps at a change or redefining what being Western uh, means because for you know a lot of people in Europe, it certainly doesn't mean liberal democracy, for example. So the far right didn't win as big as we thought, but it's far from over. Well, I think disunity within Europe is never great. As far-right movements grow within the countries, it might change uh, their their policies. So, for example, uh, even more strict uh, on, on immigration and trying to lower the numbers. Um, or, for example, you know, we've already seen uh, France and various laws to ban the niqab or any kind of religious symbol, those kind of more illiberal laws. But I just want to put it in perspective. I don't think we're there now. But I do think it's one to watch, put it that way. So you came home to London on the Eurostar. What are the odds you won't be able to take it back to Brussels to check back on these voters sometime soon? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, don't worry. I don't think, you know, the European Union is not about to implode. And, you know, I mean, people would say there were trains between countries uh, before the European, uh, you know, I'd I'd certainly... uh, like to go back to Brussels uh, again because I think there's a lot happening there. And there was a real moment on the Eurostar. I don't know why this Eurostar trip, you know, back to London was it's so evocative for me. But they serve coffee and tea, and when they offer tea, they give you two options, which is with milk, which is the British way of having tea, and then with lemon, which is very much the continental European way of having tea. And I thought, oh, there you go. You know, everyone wants tea, but you can kind of tailor it to your particular national preference. But no, but certainly um, I would like to be back on the Eurostar quite soon to go back to Brussels and just see how it all develops from these election results, not just the next few months, but really the next few years. And we'll be looking forward to hearing about it too. Thank you so much, Barbara, for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Morgan Waters, Priyanka Tilve. Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Luke Rohr was the sound designer. The social media producer is Natalia Aldana. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Barbara Serra. We'll be back next week. <laughs>